0: Dear Jesus, we praise your name. You are the Emmanuel. You are God with us in our infirmities, in that you took upon yourself the sin, became sin for us, that was represented by all that you died for, and you also took upon yourself the punishment that it deserved. God with us, taking on the weight of our sin. Jesus, we praise you as our Emmanuel, because you came and endured as the second Adam, the probation and the testing, and thereby established, according to your obedience to the Father, the perfect righteousness that can be imputed to us upon your death for our sins and our regeneration. God with us, giving us his righteousness. Jesus, we praise you as our Emmanuel, and that you took on the form of a servant. You came and were born of a woman, a virgin. You came fulfilling prophecy and entering into our condition to be the sufficient sacrifice and sin bearer, the only one that could satisfy the terms of the broken atonement and restore us in perfect fellowship for the Father. For this, you were God with us, and for this, we give you praise. We thank you that you are our Emmanuel today in this service, that you are with us in the means that the Spirit is pleased to use to emphasize to our hearts, and to be present with your people in this worship, even this morning. We thank you that you are God with us at your table, that you are God with us in the proclamation of your word, that you are God with us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In all of these things, Lord, we are the richest of all conceivable people in that Jesus Christ is ours and we are his because of the plan of the Father to redeem for himself a bride who were lowly, broken, and depraved in sin, and yet as trophies for his grace were ransomed and redeemed unto the praise of his name. As we turn to your word, open up our hearts to love and appreciate its truths revealed, and I pray that you would equip our feet to follow in its footsteps, and I pray that all the while you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, as we realize afresh the great gift of gathering together as the saints of God and fellowshipping and worshiping our great Lord and Savior, I encourage you to continue in that spirit by turning to First Peter chapter 3. And let us consider, if we have time this morning, 313 through 4-6. And if we need to, we'll abbreviate this message, but I'll do my best to establish three points on suffering in the proclamation of the word today that the author makes, Peter, the apostle, to encourage and equip the church of his day, and which certainly applies to ours. The aim of this morning's message is to encourage believers in their call to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Peter, and my, the intent of Peter's words, in large part as I judge it, and therefore the intent of this message, is to encourage believers in their call to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. The title is simply put, Christian Suffering. Christian Suffering. So with your Bible open to 1 Peter 3.13-4.6, through 4, 6, let us stand once again out of reverence for the Word of God. As you hear today, His Word proclaimed in your ears. Listen to the authoritative, infallible, never-failing Scripture as we begin in 1 Peter three, thirteen. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. who has gone into heaven and is is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him for one. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God." that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. We have a little bit of territory to cover today, and certainly rich and in some ways complex passages to understand, and in other ways disputed passages as to their interpretation. My goal in handling this text today, was well, to do my best to hold myself directly to the context and to speak responsibly as I'm able and the Spirit grants ability as to the intent of Peter's message and his instructions by way of their uh, purpose to equip the church for our calling even through suffering. Think about the scriptures for a minute. Um, kids, a question for you. Were there ever a time or name a time when God's people suffered in exile in the Old Testament? So, kids, name a time when God's people suffered in exile in the Old Testament. Somebody have a... That's correct. Would you say, uh, Theo, in Egypt, right? Yes. So, when God's people were slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt, that was a time when they suffered in exile. Can anyone name another time? Oh, close, close. Not exactly. There's two other examples of exile that the northern and the southern kingdom eventually experienced, right? Even after God's people entered the promised land, would you say, son? Jericho. Um, well, they were reoccupying the land at that time. But think Assyria and Babylon. The Assyrians were fearsome enemies of God's people, and they attacked the north, took a number of them into exile, rearranged them in their people groups. And then the Babylonians eventually exiled the southern kingdom of Judah and so forth. And that's where we pick up on the story of Daniel and his three friends. Later in this passage, or chapter 4, Peter talks about the trial and the suffering that the church is going through, and he describes it as a fiery trial. A quite literal fiery trial was experienced by two ex- three exiles, uh, Daniel's three friends, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, right, when they wouldn't bow before the golden statue. So it's easy to imagine, when we, when we think of these examples, how the life of an exile might be marked with frequent suffering, trials, indeed fiery trials. The scriptures record... The, the, scripture, the Scriptures record the woeful plight of Israel in hardship of this sort on multiple occasions. We've just referenced three this morning, and in multiple scenarios. Maintaining enduring faith under such hardships is a challenge, to say the least. And this is a challenge that Peter deemed worthy of ap- apostolic exhortation. Because these challenges are real and present danger for the church of this age, we need instructions by an apostle who is no stranger to fiery trials. That would be Peter. And so Peter addresses this issue in large portions in his epistle, a theme that runs throughout his uh, two books, as I judge it, 1st and 2nd Peter. The context of our message today, our passage today, references a situation in the early church of Asia Minor, which was described in terms of fiery trial in 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised, he says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, he encourages them, don't think that this is absolutely extraordinary, something you don't have tools to bear with, or is outside of God's purposes and plan. No, this is not something strange. This is something, on the contrary, to be expected. But that does not necessarily lessen the load. It is indeed a fiery trial implying an excruciating time and set of circumstances. Then verse 13, nevertheless, he says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So in these two verses, we have, Peter bids us to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, as well as being honest and forthright about the fiery trial the church has called and is likely enduring at the time of his writing. In our joy despite trials, according to Peter, therefore, we welcome the day when His glory is revealed. In these two verses, Peter summarizes and reprises themes that he has expanded in detail in chapter 3 and 4, our text today. In these passages, our text, Peter lays out the relationship between the sufferings of Christ and our own call to suffer. Huge, important theme the relationship between the sufferings of Jesus and our own call to suffering. Recognizing this connection will equip the church to proclaim and testify to the gospel despite the battle around him, that fiery trial, and even despite the battle within him. That full scope of possible trials is referenced in these pages. These instructions are crucial to the testimony of the Christian church in every age. Let me submit, when we embrace the hardships that attend the Christian life as Peter sets forth in our text today, we magnify Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, to embrace our trials as God intended and to embrace them modeling the joy that Jesus had in his heart as he set before him the joy thus enduring the cross, Hebrews 12, as we model that, we actually are obedient to another text in our passage today. In your hearts, verse 15, regard Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, magnify, set on a pedestal, keep sacred, and, and, rep, or, and remember, do not forget the value of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And one application of this is to embrace the sufferings that He has called us to with a joy that points to His ability to carry us through it and that points to hope that His suffering absolutely proved in as a result of enduring these kinds of things. So these instructions are crucial to the church of every age. And as we embrace them, we glorify the Lord, we magnify Christ as holy. To do any less, to do any less when facing hardship is to implicitly affirm worldly philosophies like nihilism. What does nihilism hold? There ultimately is no meaning. Least of all in suffering. So this is not true. And this indicates an idea of reality and the universe that is outside the sovereign control of God. When we embrace suffering as its intended, real purpose and real promise sown in every moment of endurance, we reject, we renounce, we stand against the unbelief and the despair of the world that sees no purpose in sorrows, in sin, in difficulty, in pain, in evil, as far as they understand it, etc. Looking to Christ, we see that nothing could be further from the truth. There is meaning in what God has called us to go through every bit. And we see in 21 and 22 an appeal to the resurrection and ascension to prove this. The resurrection and ascension remind us that though we are called to struggle as elect exile sojourners, in Christ we are ultimately triumphant. We're not just pilgrims, we are conquerors. Why? Because we worship a God who resurrected from the dead. We worship a God who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father. We worship Jesus Christ. And not only this, but angels, authorities, and powers have all been subjected to Him. The resurrection and ascension prove absolutely that there is triumph and hope, purpose and promise through excruciating journey that elect exiled sojourners are sometimes called to go through. In Christ, we're ultimately triumphant. We are more than conquerors, Paul says in another place, in Christ Jesus. What hope and help for the believer. What hope and help for the weary Christian the gospel brings, and that is what Peter intends to do, to bring hope and help for the weary Christian. So let us likewise thereby be equipped. Now, our text today can be organized perhaps around three kinds of suffering. Notice in verse 13, 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That's point number one. Here's the heading, three kinds of suffering and their correlation for the Christian, or you could say their relationship one to another. Peter outlines three kinds of suffering. Number one, suffering for righteousness sake. Second kind of suffering, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's another kind of suffering, the suffering once for sins or the sufferings of Jesus. So suffering for righteousness' sake, we need to understand these and the relationship between them. And suffering once for sins that Jesus endured. And then the third kind of suffering is in 4, 1 through 6. That would be suffering in the flesh. It says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin in verse 1. Whatever could that mean? Three kinds of suffering. The first suffering for righteousness' sake, this speaks <clears throat> to our calling. This speaks to our calling as elect exiles. This is a suffering that attends our elect exile calling. And there's sort of an admonition that summarizes or that corresponds, it goes with this call to suffer for righteousness' sake. And it is this in verse 14: simply put, have no fear. In other words, There's a call to suffer for righteousness' sake, but have no fear. This is to be expected. It is not something strange, though a fiery trial not out of the ordinary. This is what attends the calling of an elect exile. And what resources do we have in order for us to indeed not have fear when we face suffering for righteousness' sake? Peter goes on to explain. Major point number two, suffering once for sins could be summarized by this charge, or could go along with this charge. For Christ, it's a linking word. For Christ also suffered. So he's pointing to the sufferings of Christ, or in one, Since therefore Christ suffered. So those two linking words are brackets surrounding a second kind of suffering. Christ suffering once for sins. So this is Jesus, the example. The verse is a kind of suffering that attends our calling as exiles. The second is the kind of suffering that establishes our example, or archetype. It is the archetype Jesus, the suffering that suffering once for sins refers to. And then the third kind of suffering is the suffering that attends our calling to holiness. And this is the suffering in the flesh that Peter describes. And perhaps the key phrase there is, "Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And this is, again, the kind of suffering that attends our calling of sanctification and holiness. Number one, suffering for righteousness' sake in a bit more detail. Under this, we realize that we are challenged for our faith, on account of our faith. We are slandered and reviled by the world around us, at least, and often more. And But we are called to consider the source, nevertheless. Do not fear, even as you are challenged for your faith, Slandered and reviled. Consider the source of where those judgments against you are coming from. And remember that God has called you to suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In overview... Or briefly, overlapping our last text, you might recall that we use this term, fearless righteousness, to describe our calling. God has called us to a righteousness that boldly stands in the face of opposition, a fearless righteousness, a righteousness that doesn't cower or shrink back in the face of slander, reviling, persecution, or challenges to our confession, our confidence, and our hope. Though those things come, a fearless righteous is willing to suffer rather than to recoil, rather than to cower, rather than to give up, and rather than to become discouraged and quiet in our faith and testimony of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So how do we live? How do we embrace the suffering for righteousness' sake without fear? Well, first of all, we have application to when we're challenged. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So, here, when you are challenged for your faith, present Christ in spite of the objections, uh, and when you do so, or present Christ in spite of the objections by others as possessing self contained and self evident glory and worth. This is so helpful in defending our faith. The young people, uh, the focus of their study in youth group and some of our applications in our Sunday morning classes as well, have been uh, oriented in our vision to equip young people to defend their faith. And here Peter gives you an instruction of how to express, how to stand with fearless righteousness when your faith is challenged. You do so by regarding Christ the Lord as holy. What does it mean that Jesus is holy? Well, holiness, in part, means that in and of himself, he has self-contained in and of himself and self-evident glory. Think of someone coming to you and saying, the sun does not exist. I think C.S. Lewis has a quote along these lines. I probably should have dug it up. He says, the biggest proof for the sun's existence is by its light I see everything else. Isn't that interesting? It's a presuppositional argument for some of you apologetic nerds or philosophy nerds. Uh, In that quote, or in that uh, idea, the proof of the sun's existence is that by its light I see everything else. In other words, the existence of the sun in the sky is the necessary precondition for our eyesight to work and for us to behold anything else. So imagine someone comes up to you on the street and says, I don't believe in the sun. Would you be able to refute that argument with fearlessness? Would you be able to counter them with confidence? Man, I sure hope so. But let me tell you something that is more self-evident to the unblind. If you're not a fool, let me tell you something that is more glorious, more obvious, and more self-evident than the sun in the sky giving you the ability of sight. You know what that is? That's the existence of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the glorious triune God in Scripture. Why, what is our most powerful defense of Christ? Sanctify him as holy. Without his self-evident and self-contained glory, you could know nothing else. You could appreciate nothing else. You, nothing else would exist. There couldn't be creation. There couldn't be our consciousness. Couldn't be a sense of morality. Uh, young people, your older ones, you probably recall some of these categories. They're part and parcel to being made in God's image. The fact that you understand right and wrong to some degree, that you're convicted of your sin, that you have the ability to communicate with others, that you have a sense of ethics morality and can philosophize, can communicate in immaterial ways, is obvious evidence that God, the sun in the sky, as it were, by His light we see, perceive, experience everything else. This, uh, we hear the ancient poets even say, and Paul echo, in Him we live and move and have our being. So even more foolish than denying the Son exists is denying that God exists. Because in Him, the necessary precondition for being, you live and move and have your being. And so how much easier is it to suffer people saying that your faith is stupid, listen young people, people all your whole life are going to tell you that your Christianity is an ancient, outdated, bigoted, ridiculous idea, you should reject it, All sophisticated people do. You'll hear that through the course of your life. But notice how you can uh, oppose that objection fearlessly and with confidence when you set apart Jesus Christ as holy. So you can suffer for righteousness' sake with a fearless righteousness when you recognize that you have superior firepower, so to speak, when you are opposed. And this extends to a worse opposition, even being slandered and reviled. Verse 16 says, Yet do it, that is, defend your faith, so to speak, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What does suffering for righteousness' sake look like when you are slandered and reviled, which means you're rejected as a fool, you're uh, scoffed at, people make fun of you, that's what it means to be reviled. Or slander, when they say things falsely against you for Christ's name's sake. Jesus himself said to expect this. So when this happens, what does fearless righteousness look like in the face of this? What does suffering for Christ's name's sake when you are slandered and reviled look like? Well, slandered and reviled is paired with two other words, gentleness and respect. Though this slander and reviling, though this is the spirit of the world's opposition to the faith, When these attitudes are matched with uncompromising gentleness and respect, the believer maintains the high ground and to the shame of the corrupt culture, the corrupt culture he may live in. This is like image bearer apologetics, defending the faith, recognizing that people are deserving of respect because they're made in God's image, recognizing the grace of God, you too were once a sinner, And so with gentleness and respect, yet uncompromising, you sanctify Christ as holy and you point them to the sun in the sky, as it were. And as you do so, you will be able to suffer for righteousness' sake, especially in a culture that opposes you with their ideas. And as of now, at this point in our culture, that's perhaps primarily the way that we are opposed is by ideas and attitudes. Physical persecution may come. It's always prefaced by and at least attended by This thing, the attitude, the ideas, and the disposition of the unbeliever opposing us. But see, Peter is calling us to suffer for righteousness' sake and to do so with endurance. These are callings, or this is a calling that attends our elect exile status. And we should not be surprised when we are challenged, slandered, and reviled. Rather, we should be equipped and prepared for those moments by the word that he has given us through the Apostle Peter. Finally, under suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter begs us to consider the source. He says in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, that it should be God's will, than for doing evil. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Another way we could perhaps rephrase the Apostle's point is this. Either you will face the judgments of men, and be found, quote-unquote, guilty in the eyes of the world, or you will face the judgments of God and be found ultimately guilty before the great throne of ultimate judgment. You could cite Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Whose indictment should you be more concerned about? The accusations of the world caught in their sin and your presence of righteousness makes them feel more guilty, so they they want to marginalize you at least? And so... As an example, what does the world find you guilty of, Christian? Have you not heard this, if not directly, said of Christians in our day? Christians are arrogant. Christians commit hate speech. This is the declaration of guilty, the judgments of the wicked. Christians are bigots. Christians are intolerant. Christians are religious fanatics. Christians are religious extremists. They're judgmental. They're homophobic etc. But consider the source of these judgments. These judgments, you have been found guilty in the court of a world dying in their corruption and sin, and they're holding you to a false standard of their values. Should that carry weight with you? No. Be willing to suffer the quote-unquote guilty charge of the world for Christ's name's sake. Be willing to be considered an outcast, an exile, a pariah, as it were. Be willing to be considered a weirdo, extreme, unpopular, dangerous, uh, somebody that we should change or even make laws to prevent them speaking in public, uh, public places, curb their speech, and violate their rights. Be willing to be deemed, according to the world's declaration of guilt, quote-unquote, guilty and outcast. Why? Because you consider the source of these judgments and you find it is better to suffer for doing good. Better the world say I'm guilty of their false standards and God deem me righteous according to Jesus Christ than I am accepted by the world and rejected on the final day. This is a perspective that gives us grace for suffering for righteousness' sake, even in our calling when we're surrounded by opposition to our belief in the Lord and our worldview, etc. This is the first kind of suffering in our text today, suffering for righteousness' sake. Second kind, Peter very quickly points us to the suffering of Jesus Christ. This, of course, is verses 18 through 22. Note verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Turn with me to Hebrews for a moment, chapter 7. Hebrews 7 expands this idea of the righteous being killed or sacrificed for the unrighteous, or the righteous suffering for the unrighteous. And also expanding on the idea that this suffering of Christ was a once event, a one time event, if you will. Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28 read For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this when? Once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This suffering once for sins is the kind of suffering that Christ endured, and it speaks something profound to us. This is the sin offering of Jesus. Was this a purposeless suffering that Jesus endured? No, what Peter is telling us is just as the suffering of Christ was an appointed suffering, so our suffering is an appointed suffering. We are, not a, we are not a victim to the abuse of men left to be battered around like a pinball in a machine of consequences in a fallen world. We are not subject to the cause and effect relationships of fate. The suffering that we endure, we can endure with confidence and with joy when we remember the suffering that Jesus endured. And this was a suffering once for sins. As such, the suffering that Jesus endured was a purposed, predestined, ordained, sovereignly planned suffering. He was the sin offering that the Old Testament spoke of. In the sacrificial system the righteous for the unrighteous how does the suffering of our sin bearer bring perspective to our own suffering well by this term just the word once you could just pull out that word once and almost write a sermon on it by this term peter emphasizes the particularity of jesus redemptive work so jesus was called to suffer a particular thing at a particular time for a particular purpose this is what it means that Christ suffered once for sins. By this term, Peter emphasizes the particularity, the design, if you will, the purpose of Jesus' redemptive work, work, which testifies to the sovereign plan of God, accomplishing His purposes in history. Jesus did not suffer because of fate, as we said. It wasn't just the forces of nature, not a victim of cruel random abuse. No, He suffered by appointment. According to the covenant of redemption, the agreement made between the persons of the Trinity from eternity past that the Father would plan, the Son would come, and the Spirit would apply the full work of redemption. These were the precise purposes of God, ordained by the Father and executed once for all in time for yours and my sake. Now note though that the sufferings of Jesus took a lifetime, a shorter one than maybe we would hope to have Jesus on this earth for 30 plus years, endures great sufferings. We see Him despised and rejected of men. We see Him vilified and we see Him abused in different ways. We see Him tempted and uh, without sin to a greater degree than I believe you and I will ever share. And this calling of suffering nevertheless was a calling by appointment. It was Christ suffering once for sins, as it were as such, this was the suffering of the righteous for the unrighteous. God's purpose in spite of the abuse of man. God's purpose in the suffering of Jesus despite the sin and abuse of man. And the argument, therefore, is this. The argument is from the infinitely greater to the lesser. If God has appointed sufferings for Jesus, the sin bearer, the righteous for the unrighteous, who suffered once and for all, who suffered once for us sins, Has He not also, does it not stand to reason that He also has appointed and planned for a particular purpose the sufferings that we are called to go through? Certainly, certainly this is the case. So we look to the sufferings of Jesus, which had such a glorious conclusion. We look to the sufferings of Jesus, which secured our eternal life. We look to the joy that was set before Christ, which gave Him grace to endure the cross. And we say to ourselves... We serve a God who ordained purpose in sorrows and difficulties, and it is never more evident than in the cross. I can therefore trust that, the, the, that because Christ suffered for a purpose, the calling that I have to suffer is also a purpose for a purpose. And in this, Jesus is our archetype, which means the preeminent example, means the standard and the one that we look to. We must turn our eyes to him during the tests of our life God's purpose, in spite of the abuse of man, the argument from the infinitely greater to the lesser, though our sufferings have no power to atone, we don't suffer for our sins, praise the Lord. They nevertheless, our sufferings are on a much a lower level, both by intensity and by uh, their intent, they nevertheless are sovereignly purposed to accomplish the will of the Lord. And what is the will of God through our sufferings? Many things. But among them, sanctifying us, advancing His kingdom, witnessing to the lost, testifying to the strength of faith, growing His church, taking ground for the kingdom, and on and on it goes. Suffering once for sins. We look to Jesus. For Christ suffered once for sins. And since, therefore, Christ has suffered for us, as we see in 4.1 and verse 18, we are drawing inspiration from our archetype. Note also, this is a little more complicated, but let me see if I can explain. Verses 18b through 21, there's a relationship between the flesh and the spirit that Peter begins to expound. He says that he might bring us to God being put to death. So speaking of Christ being put to death, and note this, in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So there's a sense in which Jesus died according to the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Then he goes on. In which, so that would be, may I submit, the Spirit. So in the Spirit, that is to say, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm going to read to you just a little bit I wrote on this, because I think it will summarize my thoughts more precisely than I can off the top. In the case of the perfect covenant son, no one restrained the hand of the Father, plunging the knife of his wrath for our sins into Jesus, our crucified Savior. And that thought comes from the fulfillment of the Abraham and Isaac uh, story, the account, remember? Remember? Abraham's hand, his knife is lifted. You have the father, you have the beloved son, you have the father, and you have the seed lineage promised son, and so forth. Seed tied to the lineage of this son, and he raises the knife, but God stays his hand. Yet this was a picture of another father and another son. Historians, historians surmise, on the same hill, who rise up that hill, and now it pleases the Lord to crush his son. Isaiah 53. The cup of of wrath of the Lord's judgment, the Father, is going to be poured out on the Son, and no one stays His hand. But that knife, as it were, quite literally, in the case of the spear of Jesus, plunges, that wrath of God, that knife, plunges into Jesus, His physical body. He was crucified and killed in that way. Now, this event is signified at the Lord's table. This broken bread symbolizes the pierced flesh of Jesus Christ. This spilled blood is the life-sustaining bodily fluids it represents as much that flowed through the veins of our Savior. In this, we see that he was crucified according to the flesh. Yet it pleased the Lord to, to it pleased the Lord to slaughter his son. Why? Why the sanction and embrace of such a horrible event in the flesh? Such a horrible, traumatic, excruciating event. Such a shameful event in the flesh represented in the communion table elements. Why this? Because this was the cost, the redemption payment to purchase sins cleansing for those whom, uh, for whom he died. Why the excruciating suffering of the flesh? Because of his spiritual payoff as it will. The flesh is the cost of the spiritual reality, so to speak. The killed flesh of Christ is the sin-offering cost of spiritual rebirth, sealed and inaugurated in His resurrection, which assures our own eternal life by regeneration and resurrection. The killed flesh of Christ is the sin-offering cost of the spiritual rebirth. Sealing and or sealed and inaugurated in his resurrection. Final thought on this. According to the flesh, what is the idea that Peter's getting at here? The idea being that the suffering and excruci- excruciating conditions were dark, horrific and intense as touching the physical or the corporal reality of what he experienced in time. However, the fruit of this trial by slaughter purchased and secured eternal life. And hope, by way of its spiritual application, raising, up from, uh, raising us from spiritual and eventually physical death. So when we look to Christ, we see excruciating physical suffering, excruciating emotional trauma more than we could ever uh, realize or bear ourselves infinitely more. But the message is this. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When we away the cost of of Calvary against the benefits of Calvary, then we see that suffering can be embraced with joy. If the item that you purchase is worth the cost, you treasure the item more than you miss the money right? Let's say you're shopping, you get a great deal on something. I'm sorry to, use, sorry to use such a trivial example, but I think it applies. You get a great deal on something, and you got this, and you brag to your friends. I only had to pay X, and look, I got this, uh, you know, whatever, four wheeler on Craigslist for 300 bucks. An old guy mad at his son sold it to me. It's almost brand new. And so the value of the thing, the cost, is eclipsed in the value of the thing. And this is the idea that Peter's getting at here. The flesh or the suffering that we are called to endure, endure in the temporal realm, like Jesus, was the cost in the flesh of spiritual realities that will endure forever. Like we emphasized with the kids this morning, Jesus took on a body in time, yet has his body forever. That body was killed but only lay in the grave for three short days. But the benefit of his suffering in the flesh is the eternal life, reconciliation, and fellowship with the Father of all He died for. Absolutely incredible. So, you see how the relationship of the flesh and the Spirit, the cost and the reward, gives us inspiration. How Jesus is the archetype, and that He suffered once for sins gives us inspiration to endure in our own call. The Spirit, if furthermore, bridges the event and the need. So, there's something else very profound here that Peter gets at. So says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which so in the spirit, that is to say, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What is the meaning here? Let me give you a second note that I wrote. The referent here is the spirit. Jesus was present in spirit when the gospel was preached all the way back in the days of Noah. The point established here is that there is no loss of fidelity or power or efficacy in the realities of the gospel, though we may be separated from those events by time, by big stretches of time. Jesus is present today in spirit in the preaching of his word and at his table through our baptism. These are examples we see in our text implied in our text, if not explicitly stated. Just as there was hope for deliverance in Noah's day, certified by provisional means of the ark, so there is hope of resurrection unto glory, certified by provisional means of baptism for us today. And here's the quote in summary that I wanted to give you. The Spirit bridges the gap of time between those realities fully manifest in their consummate expression and our trying times right now. More simply put, the Spirit bridges the gap between our own ascension, or as it were, our resurrection unto glory, and our trying times right now. In the same way that Christ, in the Spirit, could preach the message of atonement through the herald, Noah, Peter calls him a herald in 2 Peter 2.5, to the unbelievers, whatever it was, 2,500, or I can't remember how many years before Christ, in the same way that the Spirit bridged the gap and the ark, was that seal of His saving work. Right now, it's hard for us in our flesh and in the weakness of the moment to realize that we have eternal life, resurrection, redemption, and perfection of glory to look forward to, but the same Spirit can bridge the gap for us as well. And He does so through His ordained means, including baptism. So this is the message. That when we look to the suffering of Jesus and the relationship between the flesh and the spirit, we have the following. The cost of the flesh is more than worth the benefit in the spirit. And furthermore, the spiritual reality of the sufferings of Jesus bridge the event of Calvary to our moment right now. They bridge the event of Jesus' ascension and resurrection to our moment right now. Jesus present in spirit all the way back in the days of Noah, and he's present today by the same spirit... In all of these things that we've mentioned, even at His table this morning. Ultimately, though, we have evidence of the glory of the Lord through suffering in verse 22. And this is the real proof positive of, the, uh, of what is promised and why suffering is worth it. Jesus Christ, verse 21 at the end there, who is He? He is the one, verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This Jesus, who we've just spoken of, died and resurrected, resurrected, is seated right now, as we read also in Hebrews 1 this morning, at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Let me ask you a question. Is there any demonic force? Is there any human event? Is there any false authority? Is there any tyrannical government? Is there any calamitous circumstance that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ right now? Seated at the right hand of God. What's the answer, saints? No. So when we realize that, when we remember that, we know, we can have proof positive that there is purpose in suffering. God is allowing me to go through this, knowing full well that this is something that is under Him. He is at the right hand of God and everything, including the conditions of my own suffering, are subject to Him. Whether that comes from angelic you know, uh, uh, beings, or you could say demonic forces by extension, authorities, powers, and the like, etc. Ultimate glory through suffering. Additionally, this is absolute proof of the glory of God advanced through agony. The cross unto glory is absolute proof of God's purposes of the uh, beauty in the end of the dark path, as it were. Absolute proof of the glory of God advanced through the agony of the cross is the ascended posture of Jesus Christ. And we see this exemplified as we've recently referenced in According to or in illustrating Psalm 109 in Acts chapter 7, where the ascended Jesus stands in advocacy for Stephen. When we walk in spirit, therefore, remembering these things, even in the midst of suffering, we can fearlessly and faithfully live, confess, evangelize, and and assert the absolute crown rights of Jesus Christ. He already reigns, he rules right now. He did so through the path of extreme, physical, excruciating agony and suffering more than anything we'll ever realize. So when we keep that in view, remember, for Christ also suffered once, or since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. When we keep that in view, that is the kind of suffering by our archetype, by our example that encourages and equips us. In closing this morning and more briefly, and perhaps we'll pick this up in a little more, Uh, specificity at a later time, let us consider a third type of suffering. Suffering for righteousness sake, suffering once for sins, and then a third kind, also a little bit unique or maybe difficult to understand at first glance, suffering in the flesh. 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, so once again, there's a relationship between the suffering of Jesus in the flesh and a suffering of the flesh that we are called to. Of course, like before, our suffering is different, but there is a connection. There is a relationship. Remember the heading? Three kinds of suffering and their correlation to the Christian. The, the sufferings of Jesus in the flesh relate to a calling to suffer in the flesh that we have as well. For whoever, 1B, has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to no has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, he goes on to say. But in the beginning there, uh, the apostle lays out for ourselves two reasons for living. He says, for, uh, on the one reason for living is the pursuit of human passions. The other is the pursuit of the will of God. He says, verse 2, Our calling to suffer in the flesh is toward this end, or it's according to this call. We are called to live the rest of our time here in the flesh, no longer pursuing human passions, that being the driving motive force within us, but instead for the will of God. Human passions versus the will of God. So what is suffering in the flesh as applied to us? Well, I love a bit of commentary I got from one of my Bibles, which said uh, the following, we are called to uh, suffer, or in what sense are we called to suffer in the flesh? And here's the quote. Um, Since therefore, and let's see if I can uh, read my notes here. We are called to suffer, when believers are willing to suffer, abstain from passions of our fallen humanity, and th- this is a quote, it severs the nerve center or the, the nerve center of sin is severed in our lives. In other words, God ordains and arranges circumstances in our life, suffering in the flesh. And there's two ways you could think about it here. The trials that he has us go through and the passions that he has us abstain from. So both of these are an action in the flesh. One is denying the base desires of the flesh and the other is embracing the pain of the calling that God has for us. But these both serve to uh, sever the nerve center of sin in our lives. So this is suffering in the flesh for us. It has a purpose. God leads us through difficult valleys in order to continue to grow us in sanctification, to move us closer to Him. This is part and parcel of our call to holiness, to sever the nerve center of sin. What a great way to put it. So as to live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, this is suffering applied in our call to holiness. So uh, for our time, the best, the rest of our time in the flesh is to be marked by increasing Christ-likeness uh, versus the time that is past, which was marked by pursuing the passions of the flesh. This is sort of before and after here. We have a kind of juxtaposition: human passions versus the will of God. The time that is passed given to the passions of the flesh, versus the rest of the time in the flesh. So Peter's calling for a turning point here. He's calling for a before and after situation. He's calling for the church to cease from sin. And he's saying that some of the purpose of the suffering that they're going through in the flesh is meant to turn sour in their mouth the appetite to cut off the nerve center of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless, idolatry, just to name a few. And by this, embracing God's uh, course of sanctification in our lives, we arm ourselves. We are putting on armaments. We are strengthening ourselves, embracing the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, looking to Jesus, we are arming ourselves. Embracing the calling that he has on our life to go through difficult circumstances, we are arming ourselves. And boy, do we need it. Why? Because we live in a world, don't we? Much like the era of Asia Minor, the, age, uh, the area of Asia Minor, which Peter was writing. The place was populated by pagan temples, and drunken orgies all abounded. A lot of these references are to what was culturally normative in the day. Uh, orgies with temple prostitutes and worship of false gods because your neighbors thought it was cool type of things. A filthy and debaucherous. Well, Peter says, that the rest of your time in the flesh should no longer be given to those human passions, but embrace this call of suffering and look to the sufferings of Jesus and by these things arm yourselves for the will of God and the rest of the time, you know, from now on, pursue Him. So this elicits a response, does it not? We kind of come full circle here now to suffering for righteousness' sake. When we do this... The world around us is really surprised. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, which means they reject and make fun of you. But we have further perspective point here as well. It's final judgment perspective. We'll close on this point. Verses 5 and 6. But they, that, the unbelieving, scoffing world, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. And again, this is fairly complex language. Let me see if I can summarize. So Peter, in the end, he appeals to final judgment to provide a perspective for us. For the unbeliever, he says, uh, he closes with fear, fearful reality for those who malign the exiles who despise the call that God has for us and does not look to the gospel. There is fear for them. That would be verse 5. But this is contrasted with verse 6. What is verse 6? The gospels, let me submit, the gospels effect on those who have already suffered unto death. Through the, though their body has succumbed to the ordinary course of death, the flesh, never, they nevertheless enjoy eternal life according to the Spirit. Verse 6, This is why the gospel was preached to those, and I submit, to those who are dead, but received the gospel before they died, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, in other words, we all will die physically, nevertheless, because they received the gospel, it was preached to them, and before they died, they repented and believed, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the final judgment perspective. Even if they kill us, we have eternal life to look forward to, right? And this is the judgment perspective uh, that is given to us. And this is why the proclamation and the application of the gospel is so important. When we are faced in our experience, on the internal level, on an external level, on an individual level, corporate level, with the kinds of suffering that as we read this, we can relate in any way to what Peter has experienced. Remember these three calls to, or kinds of suffering and their relationship with one another. First was our suffering for righteousness' sake and its purpose. That is suffering even though the world hates us for it. Uh, uh, suffering for the cause of for the name of Christ, even though the world hates us for that name. The final one was suffering in the flesh, which is embracing God's prescription for holiness his prescription for sanctification. And both of these are possible with the gospel sandwiched in the middle, right? They, uh, Peter points back uh, to the gospel in the middle and then he points forward to the gospel at the end. So right in the middle is the sufferings of Jesus Christ once for all that grant for us the ultimate hope and perspective in the midst of times like Peter was writing to, times like ours, and times in the past when Noah And his seven family members were the only righteous among a sea of depraved humanity. Thank God, no matter how bad things get, we will always have a support network bigger than Noah's. Why? Because the Spirit bridges the gap between the ascension and resurrection of Jesus Christ to hope for our future right now. How does the Spirit bridge the gap? We reference several ways. In our text... Baptism is referenced specifically. But there's another ordinance that bridges the gap from the work of Christ to the assurance of our own souls, and that is the Lord's table. In communion, this table laid before us today is a seal. It's a certification of what has already happened. Jesus has already died for sins. He's already rose again. Our sins are already atoned for. And because of that suffering in the flesh, we are alive in the Spirit, if you are born again and if you are in Him today. I hope this day, in light of these passages that we have read, that the bread is this much sweeter on your tongue, that the juice, that the, that the cup is this much sweeter on your lips. Because just like the ark, imagine how you clung, how Noah and his family would cling to the railing on the ark. That is is tossed in the seas of God's judgment, which is drowning the entire globe and destroying all life aside from that that, was, that is in that ark." And so they cling to the railing and thank the Lord for His provisional proof of their spiritual, ultimately, salvation. And so we come to the Lord's table and we cling to these elements as provisional proof of God's purchase price for our own salvation... Jesus Christ, our ark, ushering us beyond the pain and anguish of this life unto glory eternal. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the encouraging words and how sufficient they truly are. If your spirit has been pleased to proclaim them as they're intended, we have certainly more than enough resources to stand in a day where our faith is challenged no matter to what degree. So I pray, Lord, that we return to these resources again and again. And by your Spirit's use of them, your word, your word proclaim, the fellowship of the saints, the prayers, the worship that we offer in this place, your table, our baptism, remembering baptism. As we return to these provisions, I pray that they would bridge the gap in our souls from the anguish of the moment, from the difficulty of our time, from the fiery trial right now to the uh, reality of the ascended, ruling, reigning, resurrected Christ, and our seat right beside Him at the right hand of the Father. O oh Lord, we long for that day, but we have heard this morning grace to wait. And so as we come to your table, may you grant us grace to wait, to wait faithfully and ever more obediently, looking forward to the hope of our souls eternally established in the work of Jesus Christ, bruised for our transgressions, beaten for our sins, and bleeding for our atonement. In his name we pray, amen.